Amen. Well, guys, welcome to the Grove Church. My name is Caleb Brazier, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Grove. We are continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, one of the things that marks us as a church is we're expository teachers. So what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. So in essence, we're trying to hold a microphone up to God, letting him speak to us. And so we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. This is Paul's second letter that we have that he wrote to this church in Corinth. And we're nearing the end of this letter where Paul reaches the last few chapters here, chapters 10 through 13, and he is particularly addressing this false teaching that is beginning to take root in the church of Corinth. And Paul takes it deadly seriously. This, this false teaching is done by these, this group that Paul dubs the super apostles in air quotes earlier in chapter 11. And he labels these false apostles super apostles because their teaching consisted of this belief that they were somehow a superior, particularly to Paul, because of how impressive they were, how flashy they were, how great of communicators they were, how wealthy they were, how great their life was going. They had a sort of prosperity gospel that said, look at all the ways that our life is awesome, and you can tell God is blessing us, and not this low-life Paul over here who's kind of ugly and certainly isn't a good teacher. Not only that, but look, he's been to prison, he's suffering. No way that God has his hand on him. He has his hand on us, us super apostles. And Paul is writing to the church, telling them, don't fall for the lie. Don't let the culture that you live in, particularly the city in Corinth, which had risen quickly to power in the Roman Empire, becoming the third most powerful city in the entire Roman Empire almost overnight. So new and fast and flashy was kind of the name of the game in the city. And that began to creep its way into the church. And Paul is saying, listen, that's the opposite of who Jesus is and what this new covenant ministry is to look like. And so Paul corrected them in chapters 2 through 7, showing them what true gospel ministry looks like. And now in chapters 10 through 13, he's redirecting and critiquing this view of these false apostles, these super apostles. He's been defending his apostolic authority because these apostles are, these super apostles are coming against him. And now he comes particularly to one of the points they keep coming back to, namely that they look at Paul's life and they go, look how much he has suffered. There's no way that God is with him. We make all the money. We have impressive lives. God has given us health and prosperity. Clearly God is with us and not with this apostle. Now, friends, if you turn on the television, you might hear a message similar to that with some TV evangelists or TV preachers. I, I want to put them in the super preachers on TV today that preach a similar message that will say, if you have faith, God will give you health, wealth, and prosperity. That is what God wants for you. If you believe enough, he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. It is a lie from the pit of hell that is making its way from America and exporting to all countries around the world. And it's similar to what these super apostles were saying. And when you hold it up against biblical teaching, and especially here what we'll see with Paul, it doesn't hold any water. You can take one or two verses out of context and hold it up and twist them to make them say what you want them to say, acting as though you are a Christian teacher, much like these super apostles did. Remember Paul in, the, um, in verse 13 and 14 in chapter 11 
says it's no wonder. They are disguised just like Satan is disguised as an angel of light. Of course they're going to try to pass themselves off as Christians. And so there is a similar warning that we need to hear today to make sure either that we don't believe this false teaching that's going out known as the prosperity gospel. Listen, a good tip as well, if there's ever an adjective in front of the word prosperity, I mean in front of the word gospel, you can about be positive that it's heretical. Prosperity gospel, uh, social gospel, anything put in front of the word gospel to try to make it seem to say something else is going to more than likely not be true. We need the gospel plain and simple. So this prosperity gospel that's going out Paul is here writing against it. Not only that, but there might be some other things for us here today as well. As Paul lays out the basis of his ministry, absorbing this criticism and turning it to show it's actually the basis of his apostolic ministry. So we'll be reading chapter 11, verses 16 through 33 this afternoon. And then we'll dive in. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers. We'll be in chapter 11. Verses 16 through 33. Paul writes this. He says, I repeat, let no one consider me a fool. But if you do, at least accept me as a fool so that I can boast a little. What I am saying in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but as it were, foolishly. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being so wise... Gladly put up with fools. In fact, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone is arrogant towards you, if someone slaps you in the face. I say this to our shame. We have been too weak for that. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and escaped from his hands. Well, you can, you can feel, again, Paul has a lot of energy behind him here as he's correcting these false apostles. As we go through, I want us to go through this section and see three different things that Paul does here. We'll see Paul's sarcasm, Paul's boasting, and Paul's weakness. Paul's sarcasm, Paul's boasting, 
and Paul's weakness. And then finally, towards the end, we'll see then how Paul's view of his weaknesses and his suffering give us perhaps a different picture of how we view ours today. First, Paul's sarcasm in verses 16 through 21a. Could you hear it as we read? Paul gets very sarcastic here. Now, some people take examples like this and go, look, see, we need to be sarcastic all the time as Christian. My love language is sarcasm. This gives me the right to do it all the time. That's not what's happening here. Now, sarcasm is at times a tool that Paul uses to cut through the, and get to the heart of the argument. But Paul doesn't always talk like this. But it also is instructive to see that sometimes he does. Paul's telling them, hey, listen, just put up with me for a little while. Accept me as a fool. Let me boast. Paul, in so many of his letters, is saying we're not supposed to boast. We're not supposed to boast. We don't have pride in ourselves to boast in what we've done. But now, is Paul stepping up to boast about who he is? Well, no, that's why Paul makes sure over, I don't know if you heard it, over and over again. He's like, hey, I'm talking like a madman. I'm acting like I'm crazy. I'm acting foolishly, but provide me the opportunity to boast a little bit. And Paul cuts to the heart with sarcasm. He says in verse 19, You, O Corinthians, being so wise, gladly put up with all the fools. You and all of your wisdom know how to handle this. And he goes on to say what it is that they've handled in verse 20. In fact, here's what you've handled and put up with. You put up if someone enslaves you, if someone exploits you. Someone takes advantage of you. If someone's arrogant toward you, if someone slaps you in the face, you put up with it. Paul's talking here about these super apostles who were taking advantage of them, who were taking their money, who were telling them, taking their money and telling them they needed to keep doing it because it was good for them. And they just kept doing it. And Paul's saying, you guys missed it. You missed the point. And then he turns in verse 21. He says, well, we do it. I do it to our shame. We were too weak to slap you in the face. We were too weak to exploit you and take advantage of you. Oh, us who didn't understand how to do ministry, we just came to love you, not take advantage of you. Paul's uh, words here are dripping with sarcasm to get the church in Corinth to see that they have been hoodwinked, duped, Fooled, whatever word you want to put in there, they've missed it. They've had the wool pulled over their eyes. And Paul is saying, open your eyes and look at what they're doing to you and how opposite it is from what Jesus has done for you. So Paul begins with sarcasm, trying to get them to open their eyes. Then he turns to his boasting. And he walks with a, a puffed up chest a little bit in verses 21 and 22. This is similar to Philippians 3 as Paul goes through his resume. He says, listen, if in, in whatever anyone dares to boast, again, you hear it, he's making sure they understand, I'm talking foolishly. He says, I will also dare to boast. Paul says, let me brag a little bit. They want to brag? All right, let's brag. Let's brag some. What do we have to boast in? Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Paul is putting forward this pedigree of his to say, hey, if anybody can boast and has two thumbs, it's this guy. I'm the one who has the ability to be able to walk with a bit of a swagger based on my life. Paul has ethnic boasting and that he is a Hebrew. He has religious boasting and that he is an Israelite. And he has covenant boasting that he is a descendant of Abraham. God has made a special covenant then with him. Paul is saying, if anybody can brag, it's me. Let, let's go toe-to-toe on our resumes. And let's see who can boast. But just like he does in Philippians 3, Paul doesn't stand on his pedigree. 
Paul doesn't stand on his spiritual resume. Instead, Philippians 3, what does he do with his resume? He goes through all of it. He says, I've counted it all as rubbish, as garbage, as trash for the sake of knowing Christ. And here, Paul quickly shifts from his boasting again, trying to get the church to see, you've been fooled. I have the same kind of pedigree that they have. But now he shifts to his final point to say, okay, now that your eyes have been opened, hopefully now that you're hearing that I'm not just some random guy, he now shifts finally to show them what he wants them to see and what he's been leading to throughout this whole letter as he boasts in his weaknesses. In verse 23, the rest of the chapter. He gets to verse 23, look, and he makes his shift from his flashy strengths to boasting and his weaknesses. Now, this is entirely counterintuitive because Paul's enemies saw his weaknesses as disqualifications. These super apostles looked at Paul and said, all his weaknesses disqualify him from ministry. But Paul says, no, this is actually what I'm going to stand on. And Paul's about to go through his resume of weaknesses and boast in these seeming disqualifications. Verse 23, he asked, are they servants of Christ? And you think maybe he's going to continue on this rampage of being of how awesome that he is. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. Again, he's making sure they understand. Listen, I don't actually think this, but understand how ridiculous this thinking is. I'm talking like a madman. I am a better servant of Christ. Now, based on the context where they were, or maybe even based, if Paul were to drop in here today, if we had a missionary walk up to the stage and say, here's why you should support me as a missionary, and he were to list out his accomplishments and the things that he is proudest of and what his greatest uh, authentication is that God is with him in his ministry, what would we expect to hear? What would the church in Corinth expect to hear from Paul? Well, they probably, D.A. Carson put it this way, New Testament scholars said probably they would hear the same thing that we would have wanted to hear. For Paul to get up and say, I've established more churches. I've preached the gospel in more lands and to more ethnic groups. I've traveled more miles. I have won more converts. I have written more books. I have raised more money. I've dominated more councils. I've walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. And I have commanded the greatest crowds and I have performed the most spectacular of ministries. I am a better servant of Christ. That's what the church would have expected to hear. But what did they hear instead? What did Paul boast in? What was the foundation of his confidence? He lays out his complete list, not of his successes, but of his sufferings. Why would Paul do that? Let's go through and see. Paul begins this resume of suffering with near-death suffering. First, he labels in verse 24, he says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Now, this was a uniquely Jewish punishment that was administered in the synagogue. It was the most extreme beating that the scriptures allowed for. If anybody went over 40 lashes, the executioner himself was liable to be flogged. So just to make sure, they said, okay, we'll make sure we don't go over 40, so let's go to 40 minus 1. We'll do 39, just in case we miscounted. Or if there's anybody in the crowd saying other numbers as we're going up trying to confuse us, we'll do 39 minus 1 so that we don't go over. 
It's meant to keep someone to get to the point of dying, but not quite to die. And Paul says, five times that's happened to me. He might himself then have gone and walked into a synagogue and known what punishment was going to be awaiting for him. As he walked into a Jewish town, Paul's missionary strategy was to go to the synagogue, preach the gospel, reason with people from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul walking into a town would know the punishment that was about to come for him. He knew he was about to get 39 new scars on his body. And the anguish of Paul walking into a city, why would he do that? Because of the call that God had given him and because of the love that he had for those people. He said, I know what I'm walking towards. What well, continues on, says, not only did I receive the 40 lashes, but also three times I was beaten with rods. Now, this was a, a Roman and Gentile punishment. The one we have recorded in Scripture is in Acts 16, where Paul in Philippi was dragged into the streets, stripped down naked, and beaten with these rods until they were satisfied and then thrown in prison. Paul says, that's happened to me three times. Not only that, he continues that once I received a stoning. And this, most people are familiar with, that someone was dragged in the middle of a crowd. Everyone picked up a stone, began to throw it at him until the person was dead. But here, what we have recorded in the book of Acts, in Acts 14, was just an angry mob that grabbed stones, began to stone them. They thought Paul had died. That was the extent of what had happened. Somebody picked up a stone, went to throw it, and went, oh, he's dead. And they grabbed him, drug him outside the city, and left him because they went, oh, he's dead. But Paul wasn't quite dead. And when he came to, he got up with bones broken and bruises and blood dripping down his face and went, I've still got a job to do, and walked back into the city and preached the gospel. Paul was no stranger to suffering. And you can imagine the scars that were on Paul's skin from these stonings and rods and 40 lashes minus one. Paul's body was scarred with his love and with his mission for God's grace. But continues, he says, not only that, but three times I was shipwrecked. Now, this is hard for us to imagine, I think, because most of us don't spend much time out on the sea. But if you've ever been out on the sea, imagine all of a sudden your boat goes down. It's not a great situation to be in. You're in the middle of a storm. There is no boat this is near-death experience. And Paul is saying, I didn't have a phone to be able to call anybody. There wasn't a GPS locator on, on me. I was floating in the water for a day and for a night, 24 hours in the open sea. And Paul is saying, this is the kind of suffering that I have walked through. Five synagogue floggings, three Roman beatings, the stoning, three shipwrecks. That's a total of 12 near-death experiences with still plenty of ministry left in Paul's life. This was just up and to this point. And to all those caught up in the prosperity gospel of the super, super apostles, this would have been an embarrassment. It would have been disqualifying. But Paul doesn't stop his list. Paul keeps going. Paul, Paul says, he's like a, the infomercial. But wait, there's more. He says, not only was there near-death suffering, but also there's just general suffering from both places and people. He said, I had suffering in rivers and the city and the wilderness and at sea. I had suffering from people, the robbers, my own people, from the Gentiles, and from false brothers. Paul's saying, almost everywhere I turned, there was danger on the other side. There was suffering that was ahead of me. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. But wait, there's more. He said, there's also suffering 
that I've chosen to walk into, volitional suffering. There was toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Paul chose some of this, to stay up late, whatever the reason might have been, whether it was to be able to work and have money so that others wouldn't have to give him anything. There have certainly been others, goodness, throughout history that have suffered worse pain in specific moments, whether it be in martyrdom or persecution. But I don't think there's ever been anyone in history that suffered more over the course of a lifetime than Paul. But he wasn't done yet. He saved his greatest suffering for last. And if we aren't careful, we'll fly right past it. He says, my greatest suffering isn't my near-death suffering, general suffering, or volitional suffering. It's my daily suffering. See this in verse 28. He says, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Goodness, I, we could stop there for the rest of the time and just see Paul's pastoral heart. We've just gone through this whole list of extreme physical suffering, and Paul says the greatest anguish for me is what keeps me up at night worrying about the people that I've seen come to Jesus. Are things in this world going to pull them away? Is the tempter going to come and tempt them away? Will they be giving in to sin? Have they, in fact, turned and trusted Paul's concern for all the churches. We see his heart here for the general spiritual welfare of other Christians. Goodness, this is not only convicting for me as a pastor, but for all of us as Christians. Do we have that kind of anxiety thinking about people in our church? Staying up late at night, worrying about this person that is going through this difficulty, or this person that perhaps we haven't seen in a long time, or this person who we know is walking through a hard situation. Do we have this kind of concern like Paul does? Paul lays it all out and gives his resume for suffering. It's the very thing that these super apostles were saying should disqualify him. But he boasts not in his strengths, but in his weaknesses. Verse 30 is kind of the summary of it. He said, listen, if boasting is necessary, then here's what I'll boast about. I will boast in my weaknesses. But then after that, it seems like he gives this kind of random story tagged on at the end. Anybody else feel that? He's kind of going through this poetic listing of all his suffering, this kind of culmination statement in verse 30, and it feels like the chapter should end at verse 30. Right? That's the summary of it. If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. Period. On to chapter 12. But Paul inserts this other story. Why? He gives this oath in verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who's blessed forever, knows I am not lying. Well, what would Paul have to lie about? Well, this story that he tells in verses 32 and 33. That in Damascus, a ruler under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, why would he add that there and not just stop in verse 30? Right? I love closure just as a, as a human, however God's wired me. I love things for closure. And it feels like Paul had closure at verse 30 and then opened the door back up again. It's like a song is resolved. It's like, let's just go through the chorus one more time. Leave it on an unresolved note at the end. I don't know what it's called, but you know when the song's done, but it's not quite done, and you can just feel it. It's like Paul has just unresolved this story here in verse 33. So why did he do it? Well, the key to understand why this final story is here is in the place where it took 
place in Damascus. And what happened in Damascus with Paul? What's the connection between those two things? Well, Damascus was the place that Paul was headed when Jesus took a hold of him. Paul was on his way to this town called Damascus in Acts 9 to go kill some Christians, take others, and bring them back to the high priest. He was coming to take captives. He was coming to take slaves, come to take prisoners. And on his way, the Lord took him prisoner. The Lord knocked him off of what he was writing and said, Paul, I've got a different message for you. I've got a different call for you. And as Paul then was blinded, Jesus told him, hey, you're persecuting me. Go then to Damascus, find this guy, and then I'll tell you what it is that you need to do. So Paul goes to Damascus. God then shows up to this other man to be able to go to Paul, preach the gospel, lay hands on him, receive the Holy Spirit. He's not blind anymore. The scales fall off. Paul becomes a Christian. God takes a Middle Eastern terrorist and turns him to be able to send the message of the gospel to a a Gentile world. That's the power that God has. And we see in Acts 9 that uh, after many days in Damascus, it says many days had passed, that the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. Saul, Paul is the same guy. Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. This is in Acts 9. So why does Paul include that story at the very end of this resume-building list of his suffering? Well, I think it's because Paul understood what happened to him the moment that he met Jesus was paradigmatic as his entire life of ministry. Paul was heading to Damascus riding with honor. After Jesus took a hold of him and sent him on his ministry, he was lowered in a basket with trash. Paul saw this episode as a metaphor for his entire life. Going as an honored citizen, lowered like a lowly criminal. Paul's story was no longer about Paul. God's strength would now be made perfect in Paul's weakness. From the very beginning of following Jesus, weakness was at the very heart of Paul's ministry. And Paul knew it and laid it out. Being weak was the singular qualification for following Jesus. Not being strong and not being impressive, but being weak. For these super apostles, this list would have been humiliating. But for Paul... It was the authentication of his ministry. Why? Well, because Paul knew who he was following. You remember where all this started for him? In verse 23, he said that he was a servant of Christ. And Paul knew the nature of his life should reflect the nature of Jesus, that they should look the same. He was his servant. So then we have to ask the question, what was the nature of Jesus' life? Was it marked by success and wealth and prosperity and celebrity? No, Jesus was not a man of celebrity. He was a man of sorrows. Paul knew the nature of his Messiah. And he knew that he worshipped the suffering servant, not the successful servant. Friends, we need to make sure that we have the correct order of events as we follow Jesus. The cross came before the empty tomb. Jesus was crushed before he was crowned. 
And for any that choose to follow him, we can expect the same. So that means for you, friends, there is no path to an empty tomb that doesn't first have you carrying a cross on your back. So that when Jesus looks back at you and says, follow me, he really means it. That in order to be his disciples, we have to be willing to go where he goes, to follow him, not for us to live our own life and say, Jesus, come along with me. Hey, here are all the dreams and hopes and aspirations I've got. I want to make my life as comfortable as possible. Let me sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it. Jesus, follow me. Jesus says, no, as the sovereign king of the universe, follow me. And if you do, you will find joy that this world cannot offer. You will find peace that transcends anything in this earth. But also, what does he tell his disciples? You will be persecuted and you will experience suffering because this world is still broken. But you will see me again, and when you see me, you will rejoice, and this world cannot take that joy from you. But he says, if you follow me, you've got to walk the same path that I did. And there will be difficulty. There will be suffering. And so Paul says, you know why my ministry is authenticated? Because I'm a servant of Christ, and my life just looks like my Messiah's. It doesn't look different. So there are three principles I think we get from then this resume from Paul to help us understand and view suffering in our life. Because I know for me, I've had to wrestle through a deficient view and theology of suffering. I think for many of us, particularly in the West and in America, we have a deficient view of suffering. For most of us, as we walk through pain or suffering in our lives and other either come to pray for us or we pray for others, what is almost the only prayer that we have in the midst of suffering? That God would take it away. That's the only thing that we have in our tool belt in the midst of it. But is that the only way for us to look through it? I won't go through the, the whole list, but to see the ways in which God works in the midst of suffering. But I think there are three principles of suffering we get particularly from this story to help us better understand either walking through it today or to prepare us for one day when we will walk through it. D.A. Carson, he quoted him earlier, he's one of my favorite New Testament scholars. He said before, if you haven't experienced suffering in this life, it's just because you haven't lived long enough. We will all walk through it to some extent because this world is broken. And so when we walk through it, will we be prepared or will we be trying to push it away and not try to deal with it? What does Paul show us here and give us principles in the midst of suffering? Well, first, I think he shows us that we can have comfort within suffering. The hope that we have for comfort within suffering. Where does that comfort come from? Either here with Paul or throughout the Bible. Where does our comfort come from in the midst of suffering? For most of us, we would probably just answer a knee-jerk, well, our comfort would come if God would take it away. If he removed the suffering, then we'd be good to go. I would be comfortable again and no issues. But is that the way that Paul talks? Is that the way the Bible talks? Well, for Paul, he knew that as he walked forward, he expected suffering and expected even more. But he also knew that as he walked there, he knew who would be there waiting for him. That Jesus, his Messiah, was already there. Paul knew he was walking the road of his scarred and nail-pierced Messiah. And friends, I know there's a tremendous amount of pain in this room that you're walking through. Again, talking to some of you over these last few weeks, there are a number of families that are experiencing the brokenness of this world acutely. 
And those are just the people that I know of. We are all walking in with baggage. But friends, I want you to be confident that you are not walking through it alone. Jesus has walked it before you, and he is walking with you still. The path of pain that you are already on has footsteps already on it. Because Jesus has walked before, and he is there with you. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2 says this. Says, now this is what the Lord says, the one who has created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear. There's a command. Do not fear. Well, how can we not fear in the midst of this world? With everything that we have going on, the, God says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. So that when you pass through the waters, not if you pass through the waters, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you you and the rivers will not overwhelm you when you walk through the fire not if you walk through the fire but when you walk through you will not be scorched and the flame will not burn you because i am with you the great comfort that god gave his people the great comfort that god gives us today is that he will be with us in the middle of the water and the floods and in the middle of the fire This isn't just in Isaiah 43. It's in one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life, and he leads me along the right paths for his name's sake, so that even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Why is there no fear for us? Is it because we know that green pastures and quiet waters are on the other side? No, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Friends, the comfort that we have as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death is that God has promised to be right there beside us. We do not have a God who's distant, who doesn't know what pain feels like, One of the things that makes Christianity so uniquely different from so many other world religions. God, our God, the creator of the universe, tasted pain. He knows what it tastes like. He has been betrayed. He's been sinned against. He has felt the brokenness of this world. And Hebrews says that we then have a sympathetic high priest who as we come to him broken in tears, he first says, I know what that feels like. And one day I will come and end it. And as you walk through it, I am there with you. He is leading us along so that wherever you, no matter where you find yourself, you can know that there is no place that you will go that your good shepherd has not gone before. For the great promise for us isn't God's deliverance from suffering. It's God's presence in suffering. That's the great comfort for us as Christians. Knowing that God is with us. This is what the message of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the comfort that we have in suffering. Second principle we see in the midst of suffering from this passage is meaning within suffering. We see comfort within suffering, but also there's meaning within suffering. Right? Through all, throughout all of this, Paul doesn't go through all of this and at the end just go, well, it's kind of all for naught. Can't wait to get to eternity because this life was awful. Goodness, all those lashes and shipwrecks and stonings, man, that was just worthless, ready to get to heaven. 
We don't live detached then, not feeling like God doesn't have the ability to be able to be sovereign over every single millisecond of our life. Instead, Paul knows this. He writes this earlier in this very book in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore, we do not give up even though our outer person is being destroyed Our inner person is being renewed day by day. So even though there's all this pressure and suffering that's coming on the outside of us, he says, we do not give up because we know that our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Paul's saying that the affliction and the suffering that we're walking through, it is momentary in span of eternity. It is light when compared to the glory that is to come. And it is producing something within us. It is working something within us. It is not meaningless that every single millisecond of your life is able to be used by a sovereign God, both for his glory and for your good. This is the promise that we have in Scripture. Romans 8, 28, he's working all things. That's that's an entire category, not some things, not most things, not easy things, not spiritual things, all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. When Joseph's brothers tried to kill him in Genesis 50, sell him off to slavery and have him killed because they were jealous of his dad's relationship with him, Joseph was killed and beaten not killed, he was tried to be killed. He was beaten, eventually made his way up to second command in Egypt. And eventually we get this scene where his brothers were hungry. They, they didn't have food. They were in the middle of a famine. So they had to go to Egypt and ask for help. And guess who these brothers had to ask help from? Their brother, who was now in command of them. And so they're worried going, what's he going to do to us now? We tried to kill him. Now he's second in command. What's about to happen? And what does Joseph tell them? Brothers, the thing that you meant for evil, God has meant for good. Joseph had an understanding of God's sovereignty and his suffering, that it was not meaningless, that God took it all to be able to work both for his glory and for our good. We see this most clearly in the cross, the most evil act in all of history. God was slaughtered by his creation an execution of an innocent man, of God himself. God has taken that event and has turned it now to hold up as the great hope of humanity. He took that which was meant for evil and has now used it for good. Friends, if we're able to look at that Friday and call it good, imagine what he can do with the suffering in your life. He can take it to work both then for his glory and for your good. There is meaning within our suffering. Paul says this as he lays out his whole list. He says this was all to be able to magnify God's strength, to be able to glorify him, to be able to keep me humble and glorify God. He was using every bit of it. There is meaning in it. And third, we see there's comfort within our suffering, meaning within our suffering. And third, we see there is hope within our suffering. What does the hope come from within our suffering? Okay, we walk through it. We've experienced pain within this world. We've experienced the brokenness of this world. We know that God is with us. We know that he is near the brokenhearted. We know that in the floods and in the fire and in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. There's comfort there. 
We know that, that anything in our life doesn't fall outside of God's fatherly providence and sovereignty, that he cares for us and he's using all things for our good and for his glory. Okay, there's meaning there, but where does our hope come from? What is the foundation of our hope? Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul says all the suffering in this present time, and again, we've heard some of his suffering. This wasn't the whole list for Paul up until this point, and he had even more afterwards. And Paul says all of that combined together, all of this suffering, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Paul says, the hope that I have doesn't come from deliverance from this suffering, but seeing that one day there is coming whenever I will be able to enter into the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Whenever I either uh, close my eyes and walk into heaven or Jesus comes back and brings his kingdom to me. Paul says that moment isn't even worth holding a candle to the small light and momentary affliction that I'm walking through today. He's talking about what will happen in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4, at the end of the Bible. He says, this is the glory that gives us hope. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from, his, from their eyes Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have all passed away. And Jesus will come and make everything new. Paul says, that is the glory that I look towards. That is the unshakable hope that I have in the midst of suffering. Christian suffering, a Christian hope isn't just crossing our fingers and wishing for something good to happen. Like, I hope Mississippi State wins another football game this year. That is unlikely, and that is unwise. That's what we kind of think of with hope, because we're going to go 1-9 this year, and that's fine. My hope lies in something else. But that's not what Paul talks about when he says hope. That's not what the Bible talks about when they say hope. Christian hope is fixed. It is determined. It is going to happen. It is looking forward to an event that we know will come to pass, not because of our strength, but because of our God. And Paul says, I look forward to that day with hope, knowing that it is coming. So as he walks through all the suffering in his life, he has an eye to the day when he knows that every single one of his tears will be wiped away, when all of the death that he has seen and experienced will be no more, when all the crying and pain will be gone because Jesus will come back and make everything new. Paul says, that is my hope, and there is no circumstance in this life that can take that from me. There is nothing in this life that can take that joy and the peace that comes from that promise from me. And so Paul says, as we walk through this life, we're waiting for that to happen. We're looking forward for that to come, for Jesus to come again. Goodness, this is the whole heart of Advent, which we'll get to in just a few weeks. The Advent season comes from that Greek word adventus, which means coming. It is celebrating Christ's first coming, but it is also looking forward to and longing and waiting for his second coming because it is the acknowledgement that we are still in between these two comings. Jesus has already come once. He's not yet come again. Already and not yet. And we're right in the middle. And we still live in a broken world. 
And we long for the return of our Messiah. We long for the return of this king. And that is the hope that we have in the midst of it as we are waiting. Friends, pain and suffering and brokenness will follow us up to the gates of heaven, but they will not be able to follow us in. The great hope that we have as Christians doesn't lie in a governor or a Supreme Court majority or in a president that will win an election but in the king that will come again. Friends, that's the hope that we have. Paul knew that he was walking a road that Jesus walked before him. His suffering wasn't comfortless. He knew that God was using every ounce of it for his glory and for Paul's good. His suffering wasn't meaningless. And he knew that his king was coming to right every wrong and undo every suffering. And his suffering wasn't forever. Let's make sure we haven't fallen into the same trap that the church in Corinth had and simply fashioned a Christianized version of our culture into what the church is supposed to be that celebrates the flashy, the successful, the healthy, and the beautiful. But we know that your best life isn't now. It is still to come. Instead, asking ourselves, are we willing to count the costs? to take up our crosses and follow our Messiah on a cross-shaped road to glory and being able to do it with joy, knowing that our good shepherd is always with us, knowing that our pain will not be wasted and knowing that Jesus is coming again to usher in his perfect kingdom. So we are then now freed to boast in our weaknesses because it's there in our weaknesses, right at the very center of your weakest moment, that God's strength is magnified and his name is glorified. And it's exactly that that we'll look at next week in 2 Corinthians 12. Let's pray. God, we are amazed at your grace. God, that you know how weak we are. God, that you are wisdom unimagined. That we may never be able to understand your ways. But God, we know that you are good. And we know that you are in control. And God, we know there is not a square inch in your creation where you do not stand over and say, this is mine. So God, can we have peace knowing your heart and knowing your strength. And God, would you give us a proper understanding of the brokenness still of this world and the comfort that we can have in the midst of it, the meaning that we can find in the midst of it, and the hope that we can find in the midst of it, knowing that you then are using our weaknesses to shout about the beauty of our Savior. And God, that ultimately, that is what our life is about, to lift high the name of Jesus, not to find the most comfortable life imaginable, God, but to live for your glory as a part of your mission, lifting high your son. God, help us to live that way. We love you and we're so grateful for you. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.